0: Welcome to the Sustainable Clinical Medicine Podcast. I am your host, Sarah Smith. I am a practicing rural family physician and the charting coach. This is the podcast for physicians and advanced practice providers who are ready to step back from the busyness of their clinical day, to share ideas, question everything, and redesign their clinical day. We are redesigning clinical medicine to create sustainable clinical days and create time for our lives outside. Of medicine, join us for discussions with world experts who are helping design sustainable models of clinical medicine, and the physicians or clinicians who have discovered or designed sustainable models of clinical medicine for themselves. Well, hello everybody, and welcome back. Uh, today I have special guest coach and physician and friend and charting champion, Joan Chan. Um, <laughs> Welcome, Dr. Joan Chan, I should say. I'm going to let you introduce yourself and then we'll get stuck into your conversation and before and after story. Let's
1: go. Okay. You know, I think I should have brought my Charting Champions mug because I have a mug. I, and know. I and I'm very proud of it. Honestly, I'm like I am a charity champion. Um, anyways, uh, hello. I am Joan Chan. I am a family physician who practices in Guelph, Ontario, in Canada, and I also work as a restorative medical educator and coach. Uh, what I say is that I help humans and healthcare make their experience of healthcare feel more human. It really connects well with work I was already doing previously, like in medical education in an institution, but this is work I do privately offering workshops and coaching and that sort of thing. Yeah, I'm also a mom of two little kids and a husband. I'm not a husband. I am a wife of one husband. And but yeah, I am a human who enjoys silly dance parties in the living room, RuPaul's Drag Race, long walks in the forest. That's me. Perfect.
0: Well, we are delighted to have you. So thank you. Thanks for the introduction. So let's hear about what was medicine like for you? That was that made you go looking for ideas and solutions to make it better. So let's hear about what was what was it like for you as a family doc?
1: Yeah. Um oh boy. Yeah, I think honestly even like since I started practice, especially took over my own practice. I remember maybe like a year into having my own practice now, I think eight years ago, I posted on like a local group being like, how do people not get burnt out doing this job? This job seems hard. And got like, I had a little support group going, like, I've always been very interested in like, how do we do this thing without totally losing our humanity and losing our that sense of self in the process. But then certainly, you know, the old pandemic uh kicked things up a notch. In part because what, you know, when the pandemic was declared, I was halfway through my second pregnancy. And so, just like a really intense time, a mat leave that was mostly by Zoom, and then when I got back to medicine, I really felt like I needed to do all the things in order to try and like stave off my sense of desperation and hopelessness that the pandemic was so terrible. So I, I became, I immediately became the like MD lead of our local vaccine clinic. Like that's like how I used to cope was by doing more and like just mm-hmm. doing the most. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was kind of exhilarating for a time, but not shockingly, I got really burnt out. And one of the the ways I knew I was burnt out because like I was pretty disconnected from my emotions, but it was my charting. It was like, Um, I remember like summer 2021, like seeing patients and realizing I had forgotten to chart their last encounter the month before. My inbox was out of control. And, And it was in part because primary care has a lot of paperwork, but also like I was scheduling Zoom meetings over my lunch hour. Like I was really pretending I had Hermione's time turner when I did not, you know? And so that's when I'd heard about your course, Sarah. And I was like, there has to be something better than this. I joined charting champions and like I like module one, when you're you're talking about how you chart after each encounter, and that's sort of like one of the one of many centerpieces in your program in your course. And like my brain was like, I can't, but then you like inspired me to try. And like it's been amazing. Like, and there was something about like taking control over this really painful part of my practice that then sparked this idea of like, what if I could change more than this part of my practice? Like, what if I could change anything I wanted about my practice, you know? But like that pain point from prior was really just drowning in paperwork, drowning in also like resentment, a lot of resentment of my patients, a lot of I mean, we're having like weird, difficult COVID vaccine conversations at that time, if you recall, (laughs) and just like feeling yucky feelings. I didn't want to feel towards my patients. I enjoy connecting with my patients and seeing them with fondness. And I was having trouble with that. And so those were kind of the two pieces, like my connection with patients being so gone and then paperwork just being absolutely out of control. That's why I knew I needed help. Yeah. What did
0: resentment sound like in your head? So, what were some of the kind of sentences your brain would say about your patients that you kind of noticed?
1: Oh, that's a good question. Well, I remember one, a patient came in and they had two other issues. And then they were like, oh, and then also, by the way, my knee's been hurting. And the thought in my head was like, I I wasn't even resentful at the patient. I was resentful at his knee. I was like, seriously, knee? are you serious? Like, Hey universe, how could you also give this guy a knee problem? Like I was mad on his behalf, but mostly on my own behalf. (laughs) And it was a lot of that, like seriously. So whether like seriously, the, the audacity of a patient to whatever, or seriously at the universe to give too many people sickness at the same time. I was just like, I just had all this responsibility. Like if, if, You know, half my practice were all sick at the same time. That meant it must be my job to care for all of them. Like it was like this direct correlation, and then it just felt so heavy. You know, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: so I'd say that was that was a lot of it.
0: Yeah. What were your coping strategies like then? How would you manage in the day when you were feeling heavy burdened, resentful? What would it look like if we were looking at you,
1: Mm, like before? You know. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I I had been. I've been in like therapy, mostly for personal stuff, but like it would sometimes come up there. So I would, you know, be kind of talking through stuff there, though not as often, honestly, like I was mostly focused on stuff in my personal life and would feel almost guilty speaking with someone who wasn't a physician about like resentment against my patients as if they were going to judge me. So like it was kind of an outlet, but kind of not, to be honest, yeah, that's interesting. and feel like they didn't really understand, you know. And then um, ex- exercise, like um, moving my body, that was something that has often been a way that I can cope, venting. Um, I had like a group chat going with some of my local colleagues that was called screaming into the void and we would all just be like, ah, pandemic. And like, that was very cathartic, but then didn't move things. Like it was useful in the moment to like get some of the resentment out, but then I was still stuck feeling bad and and like not looking forward to seeing the patient next time you know I just was feeling yucky so yeah I think those are some of the main ways yeah, yeah. I find it
0: so interesting that the the group chat's called screaming into the void yeah <laughs> did was that done in person as well within the clinical day or was it just on that online form
1: I would say that it was mainly that online form. Uh, I was still part, though it was by Zoom at this point, of this like other support group that myself and another clinician had kind of started and it evolved over time. But I I found it hard to get there. And that was nice to sort of share with each other in like a peer support way. Day to day, yeah, like, I mean, I, I work with five other awesome physicians and we would vent to each other. Though at that point, it was still so much more disconnected because we were all like hiding from each other, hoping not to give each other COVID. Like we were all like behind all these masks i mean we're still behind masks but like we weren't sitting in the same rooms if possible more people were working from home like it was maybe shifting a bit by that point but everything felt weird like being with other people didn't feel fully safe so then it was hard to to connect even with colleagues at that time
0: yeah so interesting And when were you getting the work done so when did this spill into what was the consequence for the rest of the uh your life
1: Oh, well, definitely charting every evening. I just sort of thought that's how it was going to go. Like I used to pre-kids just stay at my clinic and my like boundary was like, I have to get all my charting done before I leave. And then I would just be there till seven or something (laughs) or later. But then with kids, you want to get home. And so then it was like, you know, at first it was an hour of charting and maybe some inboxes. And then it was like two, maybe three hours and I wouldn't even get all the charting done, like I would I would just get half of it done, like it was really snowballing that way. I don't think I ever allowed myself to let it spill into weekends. So for whatever that was able to remain a boundary. But then like my non-clinical, well not non-patient facing days, like uh Mondays, the whole day could be spent trying to catch up and then feeling desperation. So going and watching Netflix instead, <laughs> going back, you know, like all those like procrastination techniques. So, yeah, it was definitely spilling over. And then, like I said, one of my main coping strategies is to do the most. So then I, like, would feel bad about myself. So I'd join another committee or board
0: or whatever, mm. which did So help. interesting. And you're not alone there. I think that I've heard that quite a number of times from the people who are interviewed here that – the doing is how do I fix how I bad I feel about the world is I, I mustn't be doing enough.
1: <laughs> yes, for sure. And I just want to make an impact and and sort of like it feels nice to feel like important. And you know, I at one point I was on three different boards of like local things, and it feels like kind of neat to be like the physician in the room. And and I was like offering insight that I they thought was valuable. I thought was valuable, and so I'm like, look how valuable I am making a difference. But then there's, like, not enough time to sleep and be a human. So that wasn't as good. Yeah. Yeah. That's right.
0: And then we wake up and realize it's a committee. It's not really who we are. No.
1: <laughs> so many committees, Sarah.
0: <laughs> All right. So then tell us about the transition. So what what were you noticing as you transitioned into doing something different and having a different
1: experience? Yeah. Well, you know, I started – Listened to the modules and you know, the first thing I did tackle was like, how can I actually like see a patient close the chart, as you say? And I really didn't know if I could do it. But like you say, it's this impossible goal. Let's go for it. I'd started listening to some other coaching stuff and was getting the sense of like, oh, like I can offer myself and my brain this challenge and just like see how it goes and what happens if I just don't give up and what if I get really intense about it. I know how to get intense about a thing. Okay. But I really never applied it to like something that was so serving to me. Yes. And so I did that for a bit and got into a rhythm of it and saw the results probably within like a month or so, just like, let's go, let's do it. I was like, at first I was very intense about it. Like I was tracking the exact times I was coming in and out of rooms. How long did it take me to actually finish a chart? And all of that. I think I needed at the beginning, even just to prove to myself, look, it doesn't take that long to close the chart. Look, I can do it, you know? And so then that just sparked this, like, what else could I do? Mm-hmm. You know, if you know Encanto, I really like that song in there because it's like, what else could I do as I've begun? And so it's like, what else could I do with my inbox? What else could I do even with my time? Like, then it really started to shift pretty quickly. I realized I wanted to offer this kind of coaching and this kind of inspiration to others. So doing certifications, that sort of thing. It was like a a pretty fundamental shift. Like I think the main thing, both your course and some other coaching I received is like, instead of feeling like life is happening to me, which it is to a certain extent, it's not like I'm in control of my life, like life is happening. But as if then I had then no choice of what to do with it, I really lived and like understood on like a real experiential level that I can then respond in a way and create something that I want with my life. It won't always be the exact plan I set out. But if I just keep going and keep finding my way and grounding myself in what I know I need, that that ended up serving me and my patients. It ended up serving me and my staff. And so then it was like, what else could I do? Like, what else could I shift? I've done a ton of things now with my clinic, like shifting my hours. Recently, I've hired two nurse practitioners to take over some of my hours. Like, I'm I'm really trying to think, I love the name of your podcast being like sustainable clinical medicine. I just think the way that we've been trained and the way it's set up where it's like one doctor for like a thousand patients. And so all those patients are just screwed if you're sick or your family's sick. That's a terrible system. It's a terrible design, (laughs) yeah. Why? Why? Did they not expect that person to be a human? I guess they used to like, you know, older white male with a wife, but even like that older white male was probably got sick sometimes. Like, what were we thinking? And so I'm just trying to like, how do I... How do I duplicate myself? How do I make myself more replaceable? How do I actually make it so that truly systemically, like I can work on my personal guilt feelings and I have, but like I can look at my practice and say, hey, my patients actually are taken care of even when I'm on vacation. My patients are taken care of sufficiently even when I'm sick, you know? So that's what I've been like tweaking ever since then.
0: Nice. Good. One of the things I love about what you're doing right now is the um, – and we'll talk about – so if your podcast is The Other Human in the Room. Yeah. And you're not talking about the patient. So tell us about that journey and your insights into that piece of it.
1: Yeah, that was – I think I, I've been thinking about what it is to be – like a human who cares for other humans for a long time, like I think that's like part of that initial support group I set up. Everything along the way, I've I've been a like personal development junkie, you could say, yes. for a long time of just like yes. how do we do this thing as like personally for myself, and then it always felt bizarre and became increasingly bizarre how like the way we're trained is to just pretend you're not a human and really like just sort of think in terms of guidelines and rules and like we're all supposed to be the same and the face we're supposed to present our patients are all supposed to be the same and how dehumanizing that is. And so I really wanted, I also just really love podcasts. So I had this dream of like, what if there's a podcast where we got to talk about like all the weird and real things it is to be the other human in this room. So like, of course patients are humans. And that's actually really important to remember. And the reasons that it's sometimes hard for us to remember that is because we're also humans. And so no one has to be the bad guy. You know, like often, like I said, I was feeling so resentful of my patients, like they were attacking me personally. But really what was attacking like both of us was, you know, a system that wasn't set up for anyone to feel human. And a bunch of like, what I call inhuman stories that I'd been conditioned to believe. Like I'm not allowed to make mistakes. I have to know every answer. I have to perform in a certain way. I have to make each of my patients happy all the time. Like I had all these shoulds and have tos running inside of me, extremely dehumanizing for me, extremely disconnecting in terms of how to like, can't connect with a patient when you're just like over here, basically in a permanent oski, you know, like <laughs> permanently try- trying to like, you know, please the examiner in the room that's not in there anymore. Mm-hmm. Like just trying to do your best, you know? And I just wanted to talk about how that just like, isn't real. Like even things like, yeah. So when you make mistakes, when you don't know what to say, like, I don't think I've done this podcast yet, but I want to talk about op- and, like in a, in an episode of like what happens when you just start blushing with the patient? Like, I want to talk about all the things that are like real that happen to us Yeah. only if only just to make them feel more real for me and remind me that that is actually good and actually helpful to rehumanize myself and to accept my full humanity. That is, it makes it easier for me to do my job. It makes it easier for me to connect with patients, both like through modeling, but also like, that's the level on which we can connect is when we are both feeling more human, you know? So that And actually, that's the work I love doing the most, say, like with coaching clients or in, in workshops, like I've been really enjoying kind of being like a relationship coach, but the relationship is you and your patient and like what's breaking down between you and how, how can we help you reconnect those pieces? Because like, people want, it's not just that they want to be liked by their patients, but like people really crave that, that genuine, satisfying, like connection with patients. and we can't do it if we think we're supposed to perform for the invisible examiner in the room, Mm -hmm. you know? So that's what that whole journey has been about and it's been so fun. And yeah.
0: Mm, I love that. So this is when we think about thought leadership, this is where um, you're really taking that experience that you're having and helping to define it and teach it to others and in a way that helps them create a more lived experience of medicine that is not the constant taking and trapped but yes. more of the what you came into it for i love that so much for you <laughs> and for the people you work with
1: me too it's the best that's like the thing i've really learned the most i i ha- i draw a lot of inspiration from this change theory and this sort of book and bo- uh, like uh series of it's like podcasts and literary works but it's called emergent strategy it's like this theory about how you can direct change in the world um, that comes out of like social justice work like climate change activism like anti-racism activism and so I stumbled upon this book and this idea one of the ideas from this theory is like you know If you want to make a big change, if you want a whole system to change, the the big is the reflection of the small. So, an example they give in in that book when they talk about like politics is like, we all want democracy to look different, but how often do we actually practice the kind of democracy we want to see in our personal lives? And that idea that like what we do with ourselves, with our own relationship to ourselves, with ourselves personally, this sort of wellness, personal development, like, as if it's in a separate box from the work we could do to change the system. This really helped me see like, no, the work you do with yourself to help yourself feel better, prioritizing what you need in order for your job to feel good to you. That is the kind of change we need in a system. Mm -hmm. Not First of all, because you'll feel happy. And when people are happy, they like, you know, show up in a different way at work and are kinder to each other. But like, literally, that's actually going to end up feeling more humane for patients. Like, it's more efficient because it's a fuel that we can use to do more things in a way that feels better to us. Like, it kind of blew my mind when I first read it. And it's also like way easier because then I don't have to think about what kind of person I have to be in one room or another. I can just be me everywhere and trust that that is good enough, you know?
0: Yeah, that's wonderful because I don't think that many of us have that experience where we are ourselves in every situation. We've learned how to be of ourselves as we went through medical school, always looking for how this person's trying to hurt, harm, shame me, judge me, that part of our medical school training, even though it's part of that almost apprenticeship model where we're taught how to look the same, how to talk the same, how to use the same literature. I agree with you on all of those pieces. And then <clears throat> working our way back to our humanity and knowing that we can't Change the system quickly, but we can change the experience we're having right now in medicine.
1: Yeah, exactly. And that that actually then changes the system.
0: That then changes the system because we want and expect to be treated as humans.
1: Love it. it. Like if we all just, you know that term quiet quitting? I don't know if yes. I'm like appropriated in a weird way, but I'm like really into it where, you know, for myself, anytime I'm like, oh, but I'll get in trouble if I don't blah, blah, blah follow this guideline to the letter with every person even though it doesn't make sense for me or this literal human in front of me I'm gonna get in trouble like that that it's a refrain I still hear in my head but I, I now know to like say I see you thought you're, you're gonna get in trouble and just like put it down give it some love but put it down because like it's not serving us it and that's like I um it, like the idea that there's someone always watching us that I, I don't like, I think we got it from our training. Right. And we got it yeah. from well, previously being watched and also like the messages we get about like, what will the college say? What if you get sued? Like these sort of like boogeyman's in the room with you. But the truth is like, if you are showing up best you can mm-hmm. with the knowledge you have and the experience you have, and especially if you're showing up in a way where you have, Cultivated a trusting relationship with yourself and your brain and your knowledge and the other patient, the patient, the other human that's in front of you. In my opinion, that will always end up with the best outcome. I'm not saying it will always end up with like a perfect outcome, like bad things happen all the time. But even if you look at the literature, like, why do patients choose to sue or not depends on the quality of connection with their clinician. Like, like when you look at what actually um, even mitigates some of the stuff that we are fearful will happen. It is about dropping the masks and actually just being connected and present with the patient and not thinking you have to do X, Y, Z, according to some outside standard,
0: Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I get the, um, the, opinion about that that a lot of physicians say well I am going to be looked at my admin is going to read my chart my college is reading my chart for some of the graduates for instance that I've looked after in Manitoba they have got every chart is being read I'm like yes and <laughs> and right mm-hmm. yes of course they are and what is that for who is it for us doing work in you know real time looking after us within this experience is giving us the most accurate right now and they're not out to try and get rid of you you are still yes doing great work in that room
1: yeah that really bums me out that people have that experience (laughs) that's like so I'm like Manitoba I'm so sorry but and because I know what it feels like like even without literal people monitoring me it feels like you know you Then you go into scarcity mode, you go into survival brain, right? That's, and that's when you don't do your best work, which is the yeah. tragic irony of all of these like outcome metrics that end up being shamey for people. And like you said, like, okay, so if they actually wanted to monitor everyone's charts for the purpose of kicking everyone out of medicine, that's a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> There's not enough <laughs> clinicians as it is. So they should change how they're doing their job. And so yeah. really like owning the value that we have, like how does mm-hmm. a healthcare system operate without healthcare professionals? It maybe feels like part of the systems are, are really asking that question and trying mm-hmm. to figure that out. But in the meantime, the work that I know I can do, the work that I know matters to me, that feels good to me, that I see making a difference for my patient. I'm just only ever going to prioritize that. Mm -hmm. And then if someone tells me I was supposed to write a certain thing or do a certain thing, I'm going to say, thank you for your opinion. And I'm going to continue to do what actually makes an impact, which is connecting with my patients and prioritizing what they want. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. When we're talking about the physicians who are getting their charts read, I'm like, that's fantastic because it's not like you're going to get 20 years down the road and be told now you're doing it wrong. You're like, you're getting that immediate feedback. It's fantastic. Like just having that understanding that this nothing's gone wrong, are yeah. not out to get you, they're not out to make you, you know, go away. I think that's where we immediately come from when we're having that confrontation or, or external judgment is we make it mean, well, there's something wrong with me when that happens rather than this is just the experience of the world, that they are going to be looking at your charts, that your patients get to read your charts, your admin will be reading your charts, and what else? How do you want to feel even when they're going to be looking at your charts, reading your charts, giving you feedback? Notice when your brain thinks they want to get me, they want me to leave, they're going to throw me out and say, but what else could this mean? Maybe it means they're going to read the words that I put in a chart. Yeah, and it's nothing to do with trying to get rid of me. Think I'm bad. Any of those sentences that we can start to just notice that we're having about yeah. that
1: experience. Yeah. That's so good cuz like really like even what we value in clinicians that we see or you know when you're like wow, like I really value going to that physician. Does does anyone say like in casual conversation like they're the best documenter. That's why like when on rate MD, is that the thing? Maybe there's like there's some, of course, there's some extraneous case, but like really like it's useful if there's like a especially if they have some helpful strategy. Like let's filter through anything helpful in there. And if it's actually like, mm when I listen to what they say, you know, I'm actually quite happy with how I'm doing it. If they have suggestions about how to fold what they're asking me to do in a very simple way into my workflow, I'm willing to entertain it. If they're asking me to do something that's actually going to make it harder or slower for me to do my work, I might need 10 reminders plus before I do <laughs> And I think that's how you change the system. Like, it's so funny being actually in some of these like committee meetings and I'm doing like the higher level system work because like a conversation that happens a lot in those rooms is like, how do we get front facing physician clinicians to do, to change? Like, how do we engage them to, and like really often what's meant understandably is like they see something that maybe is in need of the whole system. And they're like, how do we like, nudge everyone in a certain behavior direction. And like the joke is that physicians and I'm sure all clinicians are like trying to change them. So, like trying to herd cats. Like we're already um, actually known as being quite difficult to manage. So if you want to like lean into that about things, say there's something about your administration or, or some guideline that's just come through that you're like, if I document the way they say, it, or if I start to, if I have to pull in every patient with this risk factor to do this very elaborate spreadsheet, I literally would have no time to do anything else. You could just be like, I'm going to be bad at that. They're going to have to figure out another way. I'm going to quiet quit that immediately. Right. Going back to that, like, cause you know, there's that study where it's like, what is it? Like it it would take 27 hours in a 24 hour day to, to follow all the guidelines that primary care has to follow. Like the, job if we present it in that, like, must do the, all the things that the external people say. Like, yes. it's literally impossible. Yes. So that's yes. just freeing. 27 out of 24 hours. <laughs> yes. So, like, freeing, actually, mm-hmm. will never do all the things. So what do I yes. want to do? What makes a difference in my life, in the life of my patients? Like, let's just start there. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Love it. Okay, so let's hear... The three things
0: that you would say to those of people listening who are just in this beginnings of um, wanting to create something a different experience of medicine for themselves, what are you finding is helpful for the people you work with or for yourself? What do you think you'd say?
1: Yeah, I I think focusing in on the thing that's really ruining your life the most, like the thing that's really got you tears in your eyes, whatever it is, like, if it's paperwork, if it's that one patient, if it's too many hours, if you just need a vacation, like, and really just focusing in on that one aspect and getting the support you need, courses, coaches, friends, whatever, to to show your brain that it's possible to make a change about something that right now you probably feel pretty trapped and stuck in. Like, the power of knowing that none of this can trap us is, is huge. And so you might as well choose the thing that you hate the most, you know? So I would say that's a good beginning. Another piece of it is remember that you're a human being with a human body. I have really learned a lot from teachers who talk about um, embodiment work um, practices that, Help reconnect us to the fact that we are human beings with human bodies. Um, whether you're doing reading about that or like doing practices like some like like yoga or examples like that, but in a way where you are reminded that you are, are like a living form with cells and blood run, like running through your veins, um, and feeling the experience of that. That has been an ex- extremely grounding for me, and especially in relationship to emotion. So that emotion is is a piece of what it means to be a human being with a human body and understanding and really practicing feeling emotion as a piece of what it means to be human. That has been probably the number one game changer for me actually. It's, it feels a bit sticky to describe even though I do it all the time because like our everyday language doesn't really talk about emotions that way. But like yeah. a practical thing that once I kind of learned about emotions and the fact that all they are are sensations in our body is I would like repeat that to myself. So like if I was in a room with a patient and I was feeling really flustered or anxious, and I used to think that was a problem, but instead I would repeat to myself, like all that's happening are sensations in my body. This is how it feels to be a human in the room. Like I would just be like, this is how it's supposed to feel. That Nothing's gone wrong. Like those sorts of things. That's a very practical thing that, Even if you're maybe not ready to like set a goal and make a change, you Mm -hmm. could start shifting your experience of medicine simply by creating a different relationship with your emotions and your bodily self. Yeah. And you said three. I feel like that's secretly three. (laughs) (laughs) Get a coach. I mean, that seems very pat, but like I, I I think beyond get a coach and what I really mean is get support. Like, the system as it's designed now and like the dominant messages of society are that you're supposed to do it all on your own. And especially those of us that go into medicine, I think we often are afraid to be vulnerable. So like whether it's your partner or a friend or it is a therapist or a coach or whatever, finding someone that you can practice being human with that you know will be safe to just accept and hear your story that is also transformative. So if the first two examples already feel too far removed because they involve you kind of changing something in your day to day, just starting with like, well, who's another human who I can practice humaning with, mm-hmm. that is so enriching and I, it will allow you to have sort of the strength and perspective you need to do the rest.
0: Yeah, this is so true. This is part of that um, trauma of medicine, which we can talk about at, on another podcast, but that experience that you're having where if you are feeling alone, if nobody else sees what's happening in your day-to-day, if nobody's in there walking with you day-to-day, that increases your risk. That loneliness is Because of course, when you're feeling vulnerable or ashamed or tired or scared or exhausted, you want to hide yourself away. And that is the opposite of what keeps you safe. Yeah. So identifying the people in your life who you can be vulnerable with, who you can say, hey, I'm having a really hard time or I haven't slept and I need to say no to this shift is so important that you are not alone and that loneliness or removing or separating yourself is not helpful. We want you back in the crowd with all of us who are also humans, who also have been there, done that, know that. We're all tired and exhausted and we want to hear you whine at us. Honestly, truly. Do not do medicine
1: alone. It is dangerous to do by yourself. Oh, a hundred percent, and like it's been amazing. Like since I've started talking more openly about my experience in medicine, like everyone's like, I thought I was the only one. Like kind of the, they're almost cliches now. It's like I thought I was the only one who struggled with this, or like colleagues or clients will be like, I have this thing to confess, and then they confess that they have like perfectionistic thoughts or like something that like everybody has, and they're like, mm-hmm. this, I must be your worst case, and I'm like, I don't even know how to gauge worst best case, but like you, we're the same. Like I, I, I say all of them like me too. You know, I'm not like pretending to be some like higher healed being or something weird. Like the point is that everything that's going on in your brain is definitely going on in someone else's brain. Cause we've all been swimming in the same, like you said, traumatic, really harsh, shame based like yes. system. And yes. The the most like evil message in there is that it's individual and that if you are struggling, it's on you and it's your fault. That's That's like so toxic. And so I just love what you just said. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Go find your friends. Go find find someone else to talk to, and and preferably an actual human. Mm -hmm. I mean, online groups I think have really changed the the feeling of community for physicians, but. At the same time, you can still be suffering badly online. And so having other humans to actually talk to is super important. So find your people. Yes. Find your help. Find your... I love that message, Joan. That's really, really helpful, I think, to the people listening. So anything we did not cover that you would like to share?
1: Um, what else? I don't think so. I think um, well, I just want to thank you again, Sarah. Like on a recording, just because the work that you've done, like, has impacted my life. Like, I really can never shut up about charting champions. (laughs) There's no affiliate. I just am, like, obsessed with how the way that you applied, like, the coaching stuff to charting makes it so, like, accessible to really consider that it's possible to shift how we approach paperwork and you have you personally in what you've done have had some a major impact on me in my life and so thank you that's the thing i want to say <laughs>
0: well i'm delighted to have helped so how can people find you before we head off for today
1: yes so my website is joanchanmd.com and i'm also on instagram and twitter and tiktok God help me. At Joan M. Wait, Joan Chan MD. So the same yeah. thing at Joan Chan MD at all of those, and then I have a podcast at Well the the other human in the room, and you can find that wherever podcasts usually listen to, including YouTube. And uh,
0: yeah, that's me. Fantastic. Well, have a wonderful week, everybody. Thank you. Thank you for being part of the Sustainable Clinical Medicine podcast. If you'd like to learn more or join us to help you get home with today's work done, go to chartingcoach.ca. There you'll find all the information on the premier lifetime access charting champions program that is helping physicians get home with today's work done with all the proven tools, support and community you need to create time for your life outside of medicine. We would love to see you there until next time.